You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to the Brandy Show. Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Brandstatter, and this is my podcast. We'll get together every week to talk about football, primarily the University of Michigan Wolverines and the Big Ten Conference, with occasional forays into the national picture. We'll also keep up with the Detroit Lions and the NFL. Along the way, we'll have some surprises. We'll certainly have some fun guests and take a tangent or two that has nothing to do with football, like old movies or cooking. Who knows what? Sit back and relax and enjoy The Brandy Show. Welcome, everybody. Jim Brandstatter here. This is my podcast, and it's Episode 8, and it's great to have you along. In Episode 8, we're going to talk about Michigan beating Northwestern this past weekend, a 20-17 to game. Wolverines got off to a slow start, but they still win. And there was a phantom holding call in that game. We'll get to that. I've got some information from an official and uh, where a missed call goes to when it was missed during the game. And there was no question this one was missed. We'll also talk about the Big Ten, how it's shaping up. And who knows more about both than the Wolverines' John Borton. He'll be by. We'll talk Michigan football and the Big Ten with John. We'll have our trivia too deep this week. It's on the 2013 Michigan defense. So get your thinking caps on. The Lions fall to one and three, a tough loss to Dallas uh, in Dallas. We'll talk about that. Uh, the first quarter of the NFL season is over. And I'm going to take a look at the early returns on the NFL season. We also have a new feature today. I'm calling it Facts, Legends, and Lore. It could be fun. Today we're going to go back and get the history of Michigan's winged helmet. Now, if you don't know about it, it's actually kind of fun. It goes back to the 1930s. It's a big homecoming weekend in Ann Arbor also coming up. And what's more fun at homecoming than the Michigan Marching Band? Nothing's that fun. And uh, the alumni band is even better. We'll find all about that. So stay with us. It's going to be fun. We'll have a special guest to talk about the band. Uh, Our Michigan Marching Band expert, Joni Noble Pruitt. So she'll be coming along a little bit later. Meantime, let's get started. Michigan beats Northwestern 20-17. to It was a slow start. Got a lot of people upset. Wolverines still, though, 4-1 and one on the year, tied at the top of the Big Ten East. Let's bring in our expert on Michigan football, John Borton. He is uh, basically the godfather of the Wolverine magazine. John, it's great to have you along. Good to be with you, Jim, and I appreciate that introduction. Uh, uh, and I agree that uh, that Michigan had some people worried down 17 to nothing <laughs> on Saturday. I, I, are you truly the godfather of the Wolverine magazine? Uh, you've been there since they I, actually. I'm the made... old guy of the magazine. I know that. <laughs> you you've been there since they, they they made the paper for it, haven't you? I actually got here a year and a half in. Oh, did and, you? And uh, my first uh, fall was 1991, and it was it, it was an amazing start for uh, for this magazine after Michigan's basketball. Uh, national championship in 1989. Uh, they started the magazine. Bo Schembechler wrote a full-page letter urging people to, to subscribe early, and that certainly didn't uh, didn't hurt at all. And and we've uh, we've had a lot of uh, great memories ever since. A, a labor of love, as one uh, Mister Ufer used to say. Yep, absolutely. Well, your credibility on Michigan football is clearly established since '91. That's big. So a lot of people got upset about the slow start and. 
it's tough to win on the road anyway, but in the Big Ten, it's even tougher. Northwestern had a bye week, so the 20-17 to win, while closer, was still a win. It's one of those games you have to win sometimes because I think years past, Michigan might not have won that game. So give me your take on the 2017 win. Well, I I agree that uh, there were some concerning things about it. Michigan, again, made some mistakes to put themselves in a hole with penalties, with drop passes, uh, and, and things that you just look at and say, uh-oh, if they do that at East Lansing, uh, that's that's bad down the road. If if Certainly if they do that in Columbus, they, you can't do that and uh, and dig the kind of hole that they have really in two games this year because they, they dug a hole in at Notre Dame as well. But I don't think that uh, that necessarily predicts uh, that that you're going to have that same kind of uh, mistake-filled early game. Yeah, I, I, I had an interesting conversation uh, go ahead. before that. Yeah, uh, with uh, with a former Wolverine player that said, you know, warming up in in at Northwestern is not like warming up in the Big House, and you can be subject to uh, a little bit of a letdown. So, but I, I don't. Again, I don't think that this is. Uh, uh, a predictor of what's to come. The other thing is, I still think when you're down seventeen nothing and come back and win it on the road. That's pretty good. I mean, that's that's a tall order when you find yourself in that hole. A lot of teams don't climb out, and Michigan climbing out, I think, speaks to what their grit, uh, their confidence, uh, and their ability to come back from behind, doesn't it? I think it does, and it. it there's a couple other things in terms of process. They had to uh, pitch a shutout for the last 42 minutes of that game to hold uh, to hold Northwestern at 17 points, and that was big. Uh, there were some times last year where the defense played better early and not as well late, and you'd rather have them playing well late in the game to hold you in, and then you saw a big difference over last year in that uh, Shea Patterson stepped up at the quarterback spot and made huge plays down yeah. the stretch. The throws and the ability to scramble out. There were a lot of things in there that you say, okay, that can move you forward down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and going forward, as you said, down the road. John, when you look at this football team, is the offensive line improving? Are they getting to where they need to be? I think the defense we've seen improve since game one against Notre Dame. Where do you think this team needs to really sharpen the knife, if you will, and get ready for those big games coming down the road? Well, I think uh, certainly offensive line, we've uh, talked about that so many times here in the past few years. That needs to continue to progress. I think that it's taken some steps, certainly, but uh, they need to get better. Uh, the defense, you can't have the penalties that, that move the chains consistently. That has hurt Michigan early. You have to cut down on those. You can't. I mean, I'm not talking about the uh, the phantom penalties, uh, <laughs> for which I understand the Big Ten has now uh, uh, conceded the fact that they blew that one. But I've got I've got a little you, comment you, on that later. Okay, uh, but you've got to uh, you just have to eliminate some of the mistakes that are digging these holes, and and sometimes they were offensive penalties that killed drives and and other things that I mentioned. Uh, make the plays, and uh, I think this team has all the components 
of being very good and going into that three-game stretch coming up against very quality opponents where you know they can put themselves in a position to go down to Columbus like they did two years ago with a very meaningful uh, prospect on the table. Yeah, here's the other thing I think that this Michigan team faces. And I've talked about this before. Uh, given the fact that they lost at Notre Dame, uh, basically right now I think from a publicity standpoint, from a national perspective, they really only have a four-game schedule. Everybody wants them to beat Penn State, Wisconsin, Michigan State, and Ohio State. And if they beat Northwestern or Indiana or Maryland, nobody's going to give them really any credit. They've got to win one or two or three of those four big games for, I think, Michigan to move the needle nationally. Are they in that position, do you think? Oh, I think they're in position to be able to win them. Uh, I think that certainly those home games with Wisconsin and with Penn State, uh, I I like Michigan's chances in those. I think it's going to be – certainly Michigan State is not proven to be unbeatable by any means – but you know what that game means to them, and you know what kind of effort they'll put into it. If they make that a night game, uh, that's just that'll be a that'll be a tough one. Yeah, but and, do, you see, uh, do you see what I was saying? That they don't get any credit for anything other than those four games. Oh that's yeah, gonna be, yeah, yeah. That's going to be basically that, what how they're judged, aren't they? Yeah, it is, and that's it's partly a function of uh, the championship drought that they've had. Uh, here and and people sit back with their arms folded and say, "Show me." Show me, show me, uh, show me big wins, rivalry wins, and, and that before I get excited about uh, you know pulling a game out against Northwestern. Right. Okay. We're going to talk about the Big Ten in a little bit, but right now I'm going to play too deep trivia with you. Okay, John. You got it. I've told everybody at the start of the show. I've got all these too deep depth charts that I've used for broadcasting over the years. We're going back to 2013. Michigan's defense. You don't win any prizes, by the way, for doing this. <laughs> okay. But give me the front four on that 2013 defense. The front four would uh, be – you had some, some young players at that point. Yeah. Well, I'll give you – uh, And I'm – Frank Clark was I'm one – Willie yeah. Henry was a, yeah. a big part of that. Yeah, he was actually a backup. But Frank Clark was up there. Jabril Black. Remember Jabril? I do. He was up there. Quentin Washington and Keith Heitzman. And and believe this or not, Chris Wormley and Taco Charlton, both in the NFL today, they were backups. Yeah. They were backups on that team. That was a that was, see the thing about that team was that it it had those young players that uh, two or three years later were going to be absolute key elements of of a great defense for the Wolverines. Absolutely. Linebackers on that team. Uh, Cam Gordon, Brennan Byer, Desmond Morgan was in the middle, and James Ross out of Orchard Lake St. Mary. Remember James? He was the other James, outside absolutely. backer. Absolutely. That was, that was pretty good. To, uh, to a Ross on the, the, the roster now. Yes, Josh exactly. Ross. Exactly. Uh, the corners. Remember the corners? One of them you should remember. Uh, let me see. We've got uh, Courtney Avery. Was a cornerback on that team. You have got uh, Blake Countess. There you go. I was waiting for Blake Countess. He was one corner. The other, Raymond Taylor. And Jordan Lewis, who is now playing in Dallas, he was a backup for Raymond Taylor back in 2013. How about that? 
again, some some young talent that was going to be really good down the road. There's yeah. no doubt. Yep, and, and the safeties on that team, Thomas Gordon and Jared Wilson. Jared Wilson, yep. Anyway, that's the 2013 Two Deep Trivia, uh, Michigan's defense. Thanks for playing, John. You don't win anything, but thanks for playing anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. All right, let's talk Big Ten football. You're a watcher of the Big Ten, and uh, this past weekend one of the great I think deciding games between Ohio State and Penn State was played, and Ohio State wins by a point. They basically set themselves up, I think, as the big bully in the Big Ten East, and that win on the road is huge for Ohio State. Oh, there's no question about it, and those are the kind of games that you have to win to be a Big Ten champion. Uh, Those are the kind of games that if you let slip away at home, you just have to beat yourself up endlessly over it and certainly Penn State will do that being up excuse me by two touchdowns in the fourth quarter and seeing that uh slip away I I will I'm still scratching my head over a fourth and five run up the middle yeah that seemed doomed from the start and that's what my next question was I thought in the game Trace McSorley put himself front and center in regards to maybe player of the year in the Big Ten and he doesn't get the ball in his hands on that last most critical play. I thought that was a big mistake by them. Well, it just seems like it gives you so, so much of a better shot. You roll him out. He either sees an open alley and takes off like he did so many times in that game, or he flicks the pass to somebody five yards down the field, seven yards down the field, and you keep moving and uh, probably win that football game. The other, I, just, I don't understand it. I don't either. That was a huge game, I think, in Ohio State's win really sets them up. The other game I call this my eyebrow raiser, Purdue beats Nebraska 42-28. Now, I thought Nebraska wasn't very good when they played Michigan, but I don't think Purdue was any good. And yet Purdue goes into Nebraska and beats the Cornhuskers in Lincoln. They are really struggling. Did you see this with Scott Frost? I didn't. No, because uh, usually, uh, certainly in Central Florida, he had some – uh, things to square away early on, but uh, he won pretty quickly there. And you didn't necessarily see it happening instantly at the Big Ten level, but this is, I mean, this is a major step back. And when he came into Michigan uh, a week ago and said, told his own fans, it may get worse before it gets better, I'm thinking, whoa, that's that's awfully blunt for a, an establishing head coach at this level. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that uh, that hurt him a little bit with those folks at home. You may think that, but as a head coach, I don't think you can say that publicly about your team. How does that help those young men on that roster play hard and kind of think I've got a chance when your head coach is basically telling folks you don't have a chance? And it seems odd and out of character for – Scott Frost, who is, seems like he's more lo- known for his bluster, is uh, his "Hey, we deserve the, the national championship in '97," and and then a couple of years ago, we out hit Michigan with Central Florida, and uh, all of a sudden, you do hear him saying, "Well, it's, this is things got a lot of work to go," yeah. and you you're right, his guys hear that, and it's like, uh oh, exactly, <laughs> coach isn't believing in that. <laughs> exactly, uh, that's why it makes a head scratcher for me. This week's primetime game coming up is Nebraska at Wisconsin. I mean, that one is could be a mercy rule uh, game because Wisconsin, I think, is just that good and Nebraska is that bad. But that's a primetime game. But this weekend, I think a couple games really important. 
Northwestern at Michigan State. I think Northwestern's a pretty good football team. Pat Fitzgerald, I love him as a coach. Uh, this one is going to be, I think, an important and big game for both teams. Iowa at Minnesota, I think, is going to be big. Minnesota only one loss because, you know, they came in in the non-conference unbeaten. Iowa only lost to Wisconsin, and they lost late. So I think that's really an important game in the West. And then I think Maryland-Michigan. John, I think Maryland is a surprise team in the conference because at the beginning of the year, with all the problems they had with DJ Durkin and uh, the difficulty with a player dying and them having everyone out there say that their coaching style was too aggressive, they bullied, they intimidated their players, and the whole thing blew up. And yet, I thought the beginning of the season they weren't going to do anything, and yet they have played extremely well. I give Matt Canada a lot of help or a lot of credit for that. He's the coach that's uh, now filling in for DJ Durkin. And I think they come into Michigan, I think, with a pretty positive attitude about their chances. Don't you? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you, you go out and, uh, and you beat Texas, you've got something going. And this is, a, this is a Maryland team that has played better than expected, like you mentioned. Uh, I, I just think that um, this is a, Mich- a game that Michigan, in my mind, should handle at home. And yet uh, they have built a lot of confidence to, uh, to beat Minnesota in the fashion that they did. Uh, that, that just builds more confidence here. And you're right. They've overcome a lot early. But sometimes when you have uh, a lot of adversity and you pull together and you win a big game right out of the gate like they did, then it's, hey, you know what? It's, it's us against the world and we're going to uh, play well and, and keep this thing going. I, I just I think Michigan is going to be too much for them to handle uh, coming into the big house, and especially if you have a, a Michigan roster that, uh, again, has a little bit to prove after they're going to hear it all week long about Northwestern and, and I think probably come out with a little bit of an edge like they did against Nebraska. But uh, certainly you need a better start against Maryland at home than you had on the road. Well, we'll find out this weekend in the big house when Michigan takes on Maryland. John, thanks for being with us. Really appreciate your uh, comments and your thoughts on the Michigan team this year and the Big Ten. Thanks for being with us on the Brandy Show. Thanks so much, Jim. You, you bet. That's John Borton of the Wolverine. If you're out there and you're interested in Michigan football, get a copy of the Wolverine. It's a great read, and we, each and every week they've got great stories and great features. Uh, John Borton joins us right now. I'm going to go on and talk about holding. Uh, not holding your girlfriend's hand. Although that's basically what the referee said happened against Northwestern on a phantom holding call that ruined a great scramble by Shea Patterson in the Northwestern game for Michigan. And I mean, that was a huge play in the game. And I looked back at the tape and I said, well, maybe he misidentified Karan Higdon, number 22, as the guy who held uh, the, who supposedly held the Northwestern player. And there were in twos in the jersey number. There, 82 is Nick Eubanks. He was in the game. He was near the play. He didn't touch a soul. So it couldn't have been on him. The only other two in there was Shea Patterson, and he had the ball. So he couldn't be holding. And Higdon was the running back who they faked it to. So he was tackled. There's no way he could have been held. And Harbaugh said after the game, and I got this on a quote, 
Harbaugh said, I asked specifically just to make sure that they didn't come back later and say it was some other player. Harbaugh asked the referee, go ask the side judge who he called it on so I don't get a different explanation days from now. So he came back and said it was on the running back holding the linebacker. Now that just didn't happen. And yet that call cost Michigan in a tight game a huge first down. I don't get it. And I don't understand how officials can make a call that does not exist. I called a referee friend of mine up and asked him, I said, what happens to that guy? Is there any accountability for the official in a play like that? And he said, yes. The Big Ten gets the tape from the team. And I'm sure Michigan sent the tape to the Big Ten offices. They have supervisors for the officials. For that specific position official, side judge, he looks at it. And then the supervisor of officials who goes over all of the positions the officials are in, he goes over it and looks at it. And uh, the Big Ten has come back and said, yeah, we missed it. Well, you know what? That's not enough. These kids and these coaches, both Northwestern and Michigan, go out there and beat their brains in all week long in practice for that one day. And you got a guy out there who I think is out of his depth, who makes a call that doesn't exist. As a matter of fact, the announcer on Fox Sports, the TV broadcast, said the call was from Mars. And I would agree. And the one thing that's interesting, and here's another deal. When you want to talk conspiracy theory, I have a friend of mine who likes to get stats. And he's kind of a geek in that regard. So he sent me some stats on Michigan. Now, listen to this. This is going to absolutely make you go crazy. In the past four seasons, he has chronicled all of the holding calls against Michigan's defense. I mean, the other guy's offense holding our defensive players. And we've got pretty good defensive players, right? Chase Winovich, Rashawn Gary. You'd think we would have more holding calls than the other guys because those guys are really good at rushing the passer. And when you're getting beat, usually you get a hold. Do you know what position in the Big Ten Michigan is on holding calls that they've accepted by the other team? They're dead last. In four years, in Big Ten games only, Michigan has accepted 11, just 11 holding calls. Now, you got to give me a break on that. This is where conspiracy theories come in. When you have 11 holding calls against a defense that's number one in the country and one of the best pass-rushing defenses in the conference, the next closest is Northwestern, and they've had 18 accepted penalties. That doesn't make sense. So I don't want to say it's a conspiracy theory. Far be it from me to do that. But those are the numbers. Food for thought. Now let's move on. I want to talk facts, legends, and lore. How many of you out there enjoy Michigan football and watch that iconic Michigan helmet? Well, guess what? 2018 is the 80th anniversary of the winged helmet. The famous winged design goes back to 38, 1938, when Coach Herbert O. Fritz Chrysler arrived from Princeton to begin a new era of Michigan football. The distinctive helmet would have the practical advantages on the field, and that's why Chrysler wanted to make a change. He figured the helmet would help his halfbacks find receivers downfield. Here's a quote from Fritz. 
There was a tendency to use different colored helmets just for receivers in those days, but I always thought that would be as helpful for the defense as for the offense. In Chrysler's single-wing offense, by the way, the halfbacks did most of the passing. The quarterback was primarily a blocker or receiver. In any, any event, the new helmet was a successful debut in 1938 in the season opener against Michigan State. The Wolverines beat the Spartans 14 to nothing behind two touchdown runs by sophomore Paul Cromer. They got their first win over Michigan State in four years with the winged helmet, which debuted in 1938. That's the story of the winged helmet. Fritz Chrysler wanted to implement the winged helmet, and it had practical reasons so that his halfbacks who threw passes could identify his players down the field in the pass pattern. I thought that was kind of cool. And why did I come up with the idea of facts, legends, and lores? We were sitting at dinner one night with Dan Deardorff and his wife, Debbie, and we were talking about our days back in Michigan, and it was back in the late 60s, early 70s, and we told Debbie that, yeah, there was actually a house, a home, within the fences at Michigan Stadium, and there were people who lived there. And she said, no, no, it can't be. I said, yes. There is a house that was inside Michigan Stadium grounds over there uh, behind Gate 5, I think, Section 21 or 22, and people lived in it. It was their home. They got mail there. And she said, that can't be. I said, it's true. We actually got a picture of it from Google and found it and showed it to her. And she looked at me and she goes, you know what? You ought to do something like that on your podcast. So I said, that's not a bad idea. So I'm starting it off with the winged helmet. I'll get to the house at Michigan Stadium in another episode. In the meantime, facts, legends, and lore. Hopefully you like it. Give us a shout on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Jim Brandstatter and let us know what you think about facts, legends, and lore. Or if you have a question about something you've been thinking about or wondering about, we'll try to get the answers best we can. Let's move on to the NFL real quickly. The Lions lose to Dallas in Dallas this past week, 26-24. Uh, Lions fall to 1-3. and three. That's not good. And, and coaches like to decide on their season and how it's going, and they break it up into quarters. So after your first four games, you kind of look and reassess. Well, the Lions are through the first quarter, and they're 1-3. and three. Now, the good thing about the Lions coming in through the first quarter, they do have 13 sacks. And it's without Ziggy Ansah. So you look at the positives and you say, okay, the one thing that they needed to do was get a pass rush. Well, they've gotten one. The problem is, is they still haven't been able to stop the run from the other team. Against Dallas, Ezekiel Elliott basically was their kryptonite. He was the one that hurt them enough that they couldn't come back and win the game. I think offensively, Matthew Stafford may have played his best game. Golden Tate was outstanding. But you can't go on the road and play that well and then get beat late. you got to have those wins. you got to make plays at the most critical spots in games like that to come away with a victory. 2-2 two and two is so much better than 1-3. and three. And I think the other thing that hurts the Lions, the loss of T.J. Lang, who's in concussion protocol, offensive guard, that continuity and that veteran presence up there really hurts that O-line. And that O-line is so critical to this Detroit Lions football team. At 1-3, and three, Lions got problems. They have Green Bay this week. Again, I think, like the New England game, this is a must-win for this team. 
and we'll see how it goes. Let's check around the league. From my perspective, you might disagree. I just think that the Lions overall um, have a major issue in regards to the consistency, offense, and defense. And that's where they need to get better. Checking around the league, let's look at the good after the first quarter. I think the Bears and Titans at 3-1 and one are really good. I think those guys have surprised everybody in the league being uh, what you thought they were going to be coming into the league. And now after the first quarter, they are 3-1, and one, and I don't think anybody saw that. New Orleans at 3-1 and one, I think is also a surprise, but uh, I think they've got a problem defensively. They give up too many points, and you can't just keep outscoring people. You've got to be able to play defense a little bit. Uh, the bad surprises in the league after the first quarter, the Falcons at 1-3, and three, the Vikings at 1-2-1, and one, and the Steelers at 1-2-1. One, and one. Thought all three of those teams would be better. The Vikings, from the Lions' perspective, that helps them a little bit that they're struggling early. How about my MVP candidates after the first quarter? I really like Khalil Mack. You might think I'm crazy talking about a defensive end. Uh, traded from Oakland to Chicago right before the season started. He has been a wrecking crew. He has made a difference in Chicago, the Bears being a really good team. They are 3-1, and one, and I think Khalil Mack is the catalyst that made that whole thing happen. So I think he, I in my opinion, has kind of an edge on being the MVP after the first quarter. In Kansas City, I think Patrick Mahomes gets a vote. Aaron Donald, Drew Brees, Jared Goff, Todd Gurley, all those guys I think are kind of putting themselves in position to have a great year and be in the conversation, be in the conversation as an MVP over the uh, course of the season. Leading candidate for the rookie of the year, uh, I really like Calvin Ridley, the wide receiver out of Atlanta. I think I think he's good. I think Baker Mayfield with the Browns, because he's in such a uh, a position of uh, everybody knows what's going on with the Browns, and the quarterback position is so. Uh, Visible for everybody. I think Baker Mayfield has a shot. Lions carry on Johnson. If he keeps going, he could have a shot too. From the defensive side, I like Darius Leonard from the Colts and Fred Warner, a linebacker from the 49ers. The best in the league as far as teams go, uh, clearly I think the Rams at 4-0 and the Chiefs at 4-0 are the best in the AFC and the NFC. And if there's a Super Bowl after the first quarter of the season, that's the two teams in the Super Bowl. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll talk Michigan Marching Band. This is The Brandy Show. The Brandy Show is a Zing Media Group production. Zing Media Group, tell your story. Welcome back to The Brandy Show. You know, one of the things that's interesting about my broadcast of Michigan football, and I've written a couple of books called Tales from Michigan Stadium, Volumes 1 and 2, and I used to write stories about the players and what went on in the huddle, what went on in the sideline, and I got a lot of feedback. And a lot of it, I should say most of it, was, you got to do more on the band. The band is important. Why are you letting the band go? And I said, well, man, I'm going to have to get the band going. And I've always had this affinity now since those books came out for the band. And I found out a lot about the band, and I am now joined by Joan Noble Pruitt, who is our expert on Michigan marching bands. And we're going to talk bands and the Michigan Marching Band specifically. Joan, it's great to have you aboard. Oh, Jim, thank you so much for uh, having me. I'm so excited to talk about the marching band. It's a huge part of my life, and, you know, nobody does it better than Michigan. I agree with you there. Now, so if I called up and said, hey, tell me about the band, what would you say? What would you be? (laughs) I'm not going to get specific. I just want you to go and tell me about the band and why it is so important to you 
and so important to the Michigan faithful? Well, I'll tell you, the Michigan Marching Band, we have started our 120th season this year. Um, So it's a huge part of the tradition. It's part of the football tradition and all of um, athletics actually here. Um, For me, this is my 24th year with the marching band, and it only gets better. I've had the fortunate, you know, time to, to go to a national championship in 97. I've been to every bowl game that the team has gone to since 1995. And so, you know, you see the changes and yet at the same time, you see the traditions that make Michigan and the Michigan band so important. And not only are they important, but they're really good. And I was, (laughs) I wanted to tell folks at home and have you relate to them. They don't just go out there and get good. There's a lot of work and you have competition from the beginning of the season, right to the end of Who's actually going to get on what they call the performance block, don't you? Yep. So we start off um, moving from basically the spring into the summer where students come in and do their playing auditions. So to make the band first, they have to pass um, a playing audition. Um, So that will happen. And uh, come middle of August, we pick all of our student leaders and we set the band. So the band this year compromises 380 members, um, and we move forward into band week, which actually for us is band two and a half weeks. Um, What we do then is we teach all of the students. We review fundamentals. The band marches five different marching styles. Um, They refine music. Um, And as we finish the first week, we do our first look. So what we do with the band is um, we have a performance block, like you had mentioned, and people may not realize it, but the set performance block for the pregame portion, we march a set 235 members. And uh, that is in order to make the block M correctly, the hollow M as it moves across the field, and basically have the performance be the traditional pregame performance that everybody is used to. Halftime, we add additional ranks. Um, and we march about 275 each week. So with that said, that leaves over 100 students that are what we call our reserves. Um, When we do that, the difference is we challenge for each of our games and each of our performances every time. So we can change the performance block and interchange them every week. And that is completely different from any other band program in the country. And so basically Um, what I want to get at, and this is what I think is important, you're getting better every week in that band because you force young students to compete for those positions. And it is the best ones make it, don't they? Yep. And what it is, is, you know, it's no different than the football team or any of the other athletic teams in the sense that, you know, they're going to put what they call their starters out. That's what we will do. But what it also does is it allows the students to come in and get better each week by virtue of practice. So, you know, um, our band is a class in the School of Music, Theater, and Dance. Um, The students come in. It's a two-credit class. And they come in and are taught each week. And so they get better virtually between the competition and the teaching that's combined. Okay, what's the... What are some of the most fun things or popular stuff that the band members like? Like, you know, the band has traditional uh, favorite formations. 
the Hawaiian war dance or war chant. I mean, that's one of those <laughs> yeah. things I, I love. Tell me, do, do band members, you know, lobby, hey, let's do that this week? Well, we actually perform both Temptation and War Chant because, as Carl says, you can't have one without the other um, at every game um, because we do it uh, in post game where the band will always do a, a full performance that everybody can you know, stay after. Many people don't even realize as they leave the stadium that the band's going to go back out there and perform you know, at the end. So we do that every week. And, you know, Temptation, War Chant, uh, Let's Go Blue, all of the traditional Michigan songs are just part of a giant repertoire that the band plays. So it's, you know, the, the students, of course, love the traditions. You know, it's part of why people come here, why the students want to come here. Um, and so really, you know, everything is going to depend on what is happening with the team, you know, what we need to play on third down, if we need to play a temptation, you know, for defense. So, you know, all of that matters with the flow of the game. But the full songs that we play, we do every post game. Uh, last two questions for you. Explain the flag court, because they came in later, didn't they? And they really added, I think, a flair to the marching band well, and the whole show on Saturday afternoons. Yep, the the flag line here has been around for about 60 years now. Um, they stemmed from the carrying of the Big Ten banners um, and have moved into um, more contemporary work and choreography, and that's actually part of what I do. Um, we do, and it's very important to our students, um, a full pregame. So we come running out of the tunnel. We carry, you know, the, the Michigan colors. It's a source of pride for our students. Um, and so that is the tradition that they carry on in pregame. And then in halftime, you know, we will do work and we won't spin the tradition Mich Michigan flags at that point um, because, you know, we're going to be doing work to like this week coming up music from La La Land and uh, Pasek and Paul. And so we want to come up with vibrancy and new choreography and things to engage the crowd that's not tradition we save that for the pregame and you know for them to carry the sacred helmet flags, and, and the other thing and the other thing i love about this band this is the last question uh, the alumni band that shows up every year on homecoming it seems like homecoming is a gigantic family reunion and i think that's one of the most fun things about homecoming is watching the alumni band and the current band all operating together Talk to me about any yep. special events for Homecoming, which is coming up this weekend. Well, I'll tell you, we're going to have 350 alumni band members returning. Um, they call themselves the Blast from the Past. And we have members that have um, graduated as early as last season that will join us all the way back to, I believe, you know, speaking with our alumni, um, our oldest returning member is Doris McNabb, and she was a uh, graduate in 1953. Um, she did not have the opportunity to march on the field with the band, um, as women were not allowed into the marching band until 1972. But as soon as that opened up, she has come back and marched as many times as she can. So she's going to be our oldest alumni coming back this year. 
And yeah, it's great. We will do a combined performance with them both in halftime and then all of the traditional Michigan favorites in post game. And they're wonderful. They're, they support us. They help fund scholarships for the marching band. And, you know, we couldn't be more proud of them. Uh, they represent all 19 colleges of the university. And, you know, there are eight decades of alumni that will be represented this weekend. That's called tradition. Joan, thanks so much for Absolutely. being yeah. Th- thanks so much for being with us and getting everybody out there educated on the Michigan Marching Band. Absolutely, one of the best in the land, without question. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Love being on and go blue. Go blue, Joan Noble Pruitt, talking about the Michigan Marching Band as we get set for homecoming in Ann Arbor at the Big House this coming Saturday. Don't forget, Michigan plays Maryland. Kickoff is at noon. You can hear the game on WWJ News Radio 950. Dan Deardorff and I will be there to broadcast it. Thanks for joining us on the Brandy Show, everybody. Uh, I want to remind you all, if you come across my Facebook page, Jim Branstetter, if you get there, just like it. It helps. So thank you very much for that. You can follow us on Twitter, at Jim Branstatter. And you know another thing? Keep an eye on Twitter and my Facebook page, because coming up, we're going to have a live podcast. We haven't got the venue down yet. We don't have the details ironed out, but we're going to have a live podcast where you can come out and watch me do a show. Hopefully we'll have some special guests and you'll have a good time. Make sure to tune in to Inside Michigan Football Sunday mornings at 1030 on Channel 7 in Detroit. We also air at various times during the week on Fox Sports Detroit. Special thanks to Podcast Detroit for the technical help each week. Thanks to Zing Media Group's Kathleen Stevens, our producer. Keep us on your radar each and every week. Thanks for being with us. This has been The Brandy Show.